Welcome to the Jeff Effect. Wow, holy crap, boys and girls. There is money falling out of the sky. It's raining cash, and the question is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? We're going to talk about that exact thing on this episode. Welcome to the Jeff Effect, episode 7 Money for nothing and your checks for free. If, like me, you are older than 40, you know that the name of that tune is Money for Nothing by Dire Straits. If, on the other hand, you are under the age of 40... You probably still like 80s music anyway, notably and importantly. That cut is less than 30 seconds long and therefore included under fair use in related editorial non-commercial content such as this. Now, it's hard to imagine a more appropriate tune for today's topic, but let's start for a second with what this podcast is not. This particular podcast is not. We are not going to be talking about the national debt. National debt was the topic of one of my biggest research papers in macroecon, and uh, I know a lot about it. I have a handle on that topic. I got a high A on that paper from a professor who serves up high A grades with an eyedropper and a set of tweezers, but that is not our topic today. We're not going to be talking about national debt. We are also not talking about politics. Not now. We might in the future. What's the big idea? I am... Approaching the topic of money creation like a scientist. Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Now, this can be really confusing to folks, and I want to get a few ideas into your head here to help you understand the world and what's going on. There's just no room for politics. And likewise, I need some, uh, I need some room, some wiggle room editorial-wise. I am explaining things here. should not be construed or considered to be my agreement or condoning of any policy that's been undertaken. I'm just explaining stuff, right? Okay, so what's going on here? Well, from an economic and financial standpoint, in order to address the severe potential impacts of the shutdown and COVID-19 pandemic, the government is injecting a ton of cash into the economy. Now, normally I record these podca- podcasts off the top of my head, and, and it's way too early. I'm recording this way too early in the morning, and I haven't even finished my first cup of coffee. So I need, I need you to work with me on this. I normally just roll off the top of my head. Normally it's just you, me, and a microphone discussing the incredible, interesting topics of messaging, economics, and more. But this time I jotted down a few notes because I wanted to get the direction correct. But I'm going to talk in round numbers and generalities, really understand the idea. We can just get lost in the weeds. And we can get caught up in, you know, you know, spaces points and, you know, you know, 
subfractional, you know, uh, uh, modifications at the margin. We can get caught up in all that stuff, and it just doesn't help us understand that. That is for trying to optimize outcomes, and that's not we're, we're not trying to do that right here. We're trying to understand things. So, I need you to work with me. Understand that I haven't finished my first cup of coffee, and understand that I'm talking in round numbers and generalities, so that we all are on the same page and we understand the ideas. Okay. And the numbers. Now, about those numbers. Whew. Yeah, the numbers are astounding. Oh man. Um. It is, it, you know, we, we, when you do economics calculations, you're doing macroeconomics work, you know, you get kind of accustomed to seeing numbers with lots of commas in them. And because they're abstract concepts at this point, it's just math. It's just, some, just a calculus. It's just statistics. It's, it's just stuff that happens inside your statistical analysis applications, and you just work with it, and you get accustomed to it, and you get kind of numb to it. So I think that, I don't even think really economists understand the real size of the numbers we're talking about. We're talking about numbers like a trillion, a trillion dollars. I think I'm having a heart attack here. How do you understand as a person, or like a real person, not, not, not a pointy-head academic, as a real person, how do you understand what a trillion dollars is in real life? Because the number is so freaking large. See if you can imagine this. All right, a $100 bill. Every single one of us would love to have a $100 bill stuffed in his pocket right now, right? Every single one of us. It's a, it's a cool thing. It'd be, you, know, you see a $100 bill. You see Ben Franklin's, you know, one of my favorite founding fathers. You see Ben Franklin's you know, smirking face peering out from you on a $100 bill. You feel like you got some money to spend. It's meaningful. It's impactful in your life. $100, to the average person, $100 is a nice meal out with his wife or his, or his spouse. It is Christmas gifts for the kids. A $100 bill um, is a couple of tanks of gas. You know, um, a $100 bill takes the family to movie and popcorn and, and then some. You know, a $100 bill has meaning. That's why I'm using a $100 bill, because it means something to just about everybody. You see a $100 bill, you can do, you, you know you can, you see a $1 bill, ah, you stuff in your pocket, you forget about it tomorrow. $10 bill, you might get a smile on your face, but you know, hey, it's a couple of lattes at Starbucks. But a $100 bill, you know it, it's meaningful in some way. So we're going to use that as an example. So if you took U.S. $100 bills and laid them end to end, a trillion dollars in $100 bills would stretch all the way from the earth to the sun with 400 million bucks to spare. It would stretch 97 million miles. I did the math. 97 million miles. That's a lot of money. That's just $1 trillion. Which brings us to the current stimulus plan that is all around the news today. What about that stimulus plan? Uh, together, this $2.2 trillion legislative package is bigger than anything I believe ever passed. The $2 trillion relief package said to be distributed to struggling Americans 
$2 trillion lifeline to struggling workers and companies. Well, the U.S. Senate has unanimously approved what is essentially $2 trillion of economic triage for the economy. How much was that again? Uh, together, this $2.2 trillion... Okay, I heard it correctly. So it's it's between two and two point two trillion dollars, and that's just one of the phases they're talking about. There's going to be four phases. This is the biggest one. Um, the total the total amount of government involvement in the economy during this crisis and around this crisis is estimated to be close to four trillion dollars. Four. That's it's. it's going back and forth to the sun more than four times if in $100 bills. So now I hear the voices, and some of them have reached out to me in direct messaging, and some of them have reached out to me, you know, in, in email, and because, you know, people know that I'm interested in economics, and I've studied economics, and, and I've got a background in macro, and they say, you know, I hear the voices. They say, how can we possibly, how can we possibly just invent money from nothing without destroying our economy with inflation. And the follow-up question, this one came on Twitter. If we can just print money from nothing, why do we need to collect taxes at all? Uh-huh. Now, both of those are really good questions, right? They're really good questions. I get it, all right? So... You know, I want to talk about, you know, the best way to talk about this from a whole, from, you know, why do people have those questions? You know, those are natural questions popping in your head, but we have those questions for a reason. And one of the reasons is that there's been a long history of governments, you know, monkeying around with the money supply and, and destroying their country. Um, in, you know, at least their country's economy. And we have a, we have, fortunately for us, we have a real world case study example that's playing out before our eyes right now here in the Western Hemisphere. All right? Let's talk about that, that case study and economic tragedy. Let's talk about Venezuela. Now, Venezuela, Venezuela is a rich, was a very rich country. It was an OPEC nation, it has a lot of oil. Um, you know, ironically, look this up. They're sitting right there, you know, and there's a reason for this. The impact, the, the meteor impact 63 million years ago that killed off all the, supposedly killed off all the dinosaurs, struck Venezuela. Whoa. Just just there on, on the coastline of Venezuela. And some of that disruption trapped a lot of uh, uh, free radical carbon, if you will, in the soil. I might, This is my opinion and the opinion of some other people. And that economic, that uh, geologic upheaval took and gave them some trapped a lot of oil in the ground, and they they have it, and it's a source of great wealth for them, and it has been for for for, for decades. But Hugo Chavez came to power in, in 1999. At the time, you know, Venezuela was one of the most modern and wealthy countries in South America. You know, it was it was it was a doing really really well. But like like all countries, there's you know there's a there's a very old saying in scripture that says the poor they shall always be among us. And there were there were arguably poor people in Venezuela too. There's some very rich people in Venezuela. And Hugo, Hugo Chavez came to power in 1999, the promise of you know, you know balancing out that equation.
um, in 2005. He was, you know, he, he was elected successive six-year terms. Um, in 2005, upon his re-election, he implemented the plan that many of us think he had all along, that once he had cemented his power for the first six years, he took advantage of the second six years and proclaimed Venezuela socialist utopia. And he nationalized, you know, Rita's confiscated, he nationalized all the uh, oil industries and the finance industries and a few other things and uh, took control of the military. And, you know, um, things got bad. Now, um, he said about to transform that economy into a socialist system, you know, industries, you know, were, 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 were taken over. And then the printing presses for currency, they started running at full speed. So this is the thing about money supply, and, and this is why people are concerned. When you first inject money supply, there's a period of euphoria, right? Prices don't move right away. There's always a lag. So initially, everyone just feels like they're getting richer. Because Great. there's just money everywhere, and lots of people are investing money, lots of people are spending money, and the economy hums along for a year or two, doing really, doing really well. But underneath, there's a, there's, a, a, a wearing away, a dissolving of the the economic structure. You just can't see it at first. Um, well, then you know Hugo Chavez, things are starting to get a little bit bumpy, a little bit dicey. The, there's warning signs. There's cracks. You know, things are not being maintained properly. The oil wells are breaking down. Uh, the, you know, the, the price of oil goes up and down, and, and they can't sell as much. And then, you know, Hugo Chavez dies in 2013, and then he's replaced by his hand-picked socialist successor, a guy named Nicolas Maduro, right? And then, sure enough, as any economist who's even cracked open the most basic macroeconomic textbook knew would happen, in 2015, 2016, Venezuela enters a period not just of inflation, not just the, you know, 5 to 10% inflation that the U.S. had in the 1970s. They entered a period of hyperinflation. Venezuela's monthly inflation rate dropped for the second straight month in June, but the annual rate remains well over 400,000%. The latest rate nearly halved from over 800,000% in May. According to an opposition lawmaker Wednesday, workers' salaries are still not nearly enough to cover the rising costs of consumer goods in the collapsing South American economy. The official minimum wage is 40,000 bolivars a month, equivalent to less than six U.S. dollars. Hyperinflation. What, what does hyperinflation mean? What, what do I mean by hyperinflation? It's not like hyperspace in Star Wars. We're talking about hyperinflation, but you know what? You're going wrong really fast. So let me, let me put that in perspective. You know, it, we would be in the United States, if we had inflation of 5%, we would be shocked and mortified by it. Because just simply stated, what that means is that if you had $100 in January, that by December of that same year, You'd only be able to. It would only feel like ninety-five bucks. The pr price of everything would go up about five percent on average. Some things would go down. Some things would go up. But the price of most goods and services, on average, would go up. You'd feel poor. You know, you'd be able to. You wouldn't be able to buy as much with the same hundred bucks. Okay, uh, if you had a thousand bucks, it's very simple. If you had a thousand bucks in January, it would only feel and purchase stuff that felt like nine hundred and fifty dollars by December. That'd be 5% inflation. Okay, so now, in 2016, Venezuela enters their hyperinflation, 
and the, the inflation rate in 2016 was 274%, not 5%, 274%. In 2017, it was 863%. If you think I'm making this up, double check me, fact check me. In, in 2018, the inflation rate in Venezuela reached 130,000%. Oh, man. That's unimaginable. Overall, to, to, to today, the inflation, set from 2016 until today, the overall inflation has increased 53, almost 54 million percent in Venezuela. 54 million percent. Now, they, even in the middle of all that, they even re did a big currency reset. They called all the old currency back. They reset their currency, and this is right in the middle in 2018. But instead of stabilizing the bolivar in 2018, as you can see, 130,000% in a single year, it became the worst inflation year ever. So let's talk about what that would mean. At its peak in 2018, th that's when they had that huge inflation bubble. At 2018, if you had $1,000 in January, it would feel like you had 78 cents in December. I mean, how would you feel if you know, you're sitting there and you're feeling good and you have $1,000 the bank account you're keeping for a rainy day? And then a year later, that same $1,000 you saved in the good times is now only worth 73 cents. Now, why did it happen? Why did that happen? I mean, you know, what caused that incredible inflation in, in Venezuela? And it was uh, like all major inflation swings. I mean, there's, a, there's multiple factors that influence these things, and we can talk about that in detail. But we're talking about money supply right now because it's related to what we're doing here in the United States. <sighs> the money supply in Venezuela, broadly... You know, their, their currency is called the Bolivar, right? So when I say Bolivar, I'm talking about... Their, it's their equivalent, it, was, it was their equivalent of the dollar, all right? So their, the supply of currency in, the, in Venezuela went from 727 billion Bolivar in 2013 to 4.9 quintillion Bolivars in January of this year. That's that's sixty. It's, I mean, sorry, that's more than six million times more money in an economy in just seven years. So the supply of money, the money that was there, uh, provided electronically or in literally in printed paper currency, increased six million x, six million times in seven years. During now, this is this is an important thing. During the same period, or roughly the same period, and I gotta tell you, getting accurate numbers out of Venezuela is, it's it's almost as hard as getting numbers out of China. The communist and socialist, you know, dictatorial governments, authoritarian regimes lie about 
stats all the time. So we have to approach, and, and they usually lie in their favor, not against themselves, right? So, but we, we are doing our best to get the right information. So, you know, this, this is what we know. But dur- during that time when they were increasing their currency so much, the GDP, the GDP, that means the, the sum total of value of all the products and services produced by the economy, the, the Venezuela's GDP peaked in 2011 at 334 billion. Uh, two years later, it was a little bit lower. It's, it's still around 300 billion. All right. Um, last year, the estimate is just over 70 billion. I mean, holy man, my heart bleeds for these people. The the productive capacity. I'm, it's the wrong word. The productive output of the Venezuelan economy has been cut by three quarters. It's now just a quarter of what it used to be. And tragically, they're not done going down yet. The GDP forecast for this year is $63 billion. And the forecast for next year, 2021, is just $60 billion. So look at what happened. The money supply was, is, has been multiplied six million times while the productive output, the value of all goods and services produced by the country has been decreased by 75%, right? This complete decoupling of the value, right, of, of uh, the, the monetary real need for money is decoupled from the actual things that are being valued in money. And that is what causes inflation like this all the time. You know, it's why our hearts bleed. My heart breaks for Venezuela. There's some great people. A lot of the, lot of the best business people, most educated people have fled the nation. There's, but there's no mystery here, you know, aside from the general suckiness of socialist dogma. A rapidly increasing money supply and a rapidly falling economy with no mechanism to curtail or contain that money supply that causes inflation. So what causes that hyperinflation, right? Again, and we quibble, you know, our target inflation rate here in the United States was at one point, say, you know, argue about the details later. We like to keep it around two, two and a half percent. There's reasons for that. We need to do a whole podcast just explaining Deflate, inflation and deflation. I may touch on that in this podcast if I have time, just a little bit to give you an introduction to it. But let's talk about the U.S. money supply. Now, our, uh, but we have to talk about our money supply in conjunction with our GDP. So, so we know Venezuela's problem, complete decoupling. Now, the U.S. money supply currently, M2, um, that's a semi-broad, you know, it's a good functional number for us to work with um, to talk about the money supply available because they have the Fed has M1, M2, M3, and M4, and, and it goes on and includes different things. But let's just work with M2 for a second. The M2 money supply in, in the U.S. right now is about $15.5 trillion. Now, $15.5 trillion. The U.S. GDP is bigger than that. It's $22 trillion. Now, now you might ask yourself, well, how do you do that? How do you, how do you have less money than you have transactions going on? That's a good question, right? So 
right now, not including the stimulus we're going through right now, because we're cutting this off, say, in you know, late, you know, late January, early February, we had $15.5 trillion, right? Things, things are changing now rapidly. But the U.S. money supply was $15.5 trillion, with a GDP target is about $22 trillion, just under, like 21.3 or something like that was 2019. Um, it's supposed to be a little bit lower in this year, but not much. Um, but you see, how do you do that? Well, it's because money is spent over and over again, right? Um, the key is that not, not how much we have overall, right? It's, it's how much, if we have enough money to support all the transactions being, being incurred. Uh, you go to the store, you buy a gallon of milk, but then the, the store buys another gallon from their supplier and they buy the raw milk from the farmer and the money's spent multiple times. So you don't need to have as much money as you think you do in actual, in actual money supply. So what does that tell us? Uh, it tells us that we're not Venezuela, um, and it tells us that we are a ton, heck of a lot better off than Venezuela and that we have no danger anytime soon and, uh, of becoming a Venezuela. It, it just, you have to embrace that as a truism. We are, we are a hell of a long distance away from having hyperinflation, right? Now, we had an inflation problem. You know, again, I'm, I'm over the age of 40. I remember the 1970s really, really well. And I remember the inflation we went through there. And, and uh, people thought that was bad inflation. And nothing compared to Venezuela. You know, it's like, you know, 5 6 7% here and there, you know, spiking up and down, going sideways. That's why they call it the stagflation era. But, you know, in that situation, we were increasing. What caused that, as we talked about this in a previous podcast, what, what caused that is that we were increasing money supply faster than money demand, but not radically so, just marginally so, and enough to spur inflation. And then Paul Volcker uh, was appointed by Jimmy Carter, um, and then when Ronald Reagan came in, Ronald Reagan said, go fix it, Paul. And Paul went and fixed it. And we yeah, cut off the money supply. We reduced the money supply in the economy. The shock caused us a brief recession. But then we got everything back on track, and inflation was, was stymied. But how does the Fed do these things? How does the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, how do they even create money? You know, we imagine things. You know, the average guy imagines literally printing presses sitting there running day and night with, you know, government minions in black overcoats running these printing presses, cranking out bazillions and bazillions and bazillions of dollars. Yeah, you know, that, that, that's, that's kind of how it works, but not really. Actual currency, you know, when we talk about money supply, you know, we have to think about it completely different, right, than money, than, than currency, right? Currency... There's not that much out there, um, you know. Th there's there's probably you know less than a trillion dollars of actual printed money and printed paper and minted coins. There's probably less than a trillion out there right now. So I think it was eight. A few years ago, I looked and it was eight hundred and fifty-seven billion. I am going completely off of memory, but um, but you know now it's 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 the actual physical jingly and foldy money in your pocket. Is that's out there in the world is probably less than a trillion dollars right now. Um, so where's the rest of it? 
Well, lots of different ways, right? Um, you know, and the how they create, how does the Federal Reserve, how's the best way to, to do this? The Federal Reserve has the power to make digital money um, when they need it. But they always try to do it in a way that doesn't change the overall value of the economy. This get, hope, try to imagine, try, try to stick with me in this. I know it's a complicated topic. I know it's hard. Heck, most people who have economics degrees get kind of befuddled and their eyes glaze over when they talk about this. But they can take and do this, right? They can go out and they can buy an asset. They can buy an asset. They can buy a treasury bond. So believe it or not, one of the largest holders of treasury bonds in the world is the government itself. The government holds its own bonds. And the Federal Reserve takes these open market actions to take and stabilize interest rates. So when the federal government is issuing treasury, bo- treasury bonds to, to finance government activities, you know, again, no comment yet on deficit spending. That's a whole separate topic. But the government, when your government sells a bond, they sell a lot of them, that's def- they're, they're, they're using that money to finance you know, government stuff. It's deficit spending. But the government, if the, if the interest rates are getting out of whack, the Fed can step in and buy some by electronically printing the money. The point, though, is that the Treasury bill exists, the Treasury bill still exists, and the government swaps out cash for that Treasury bill. Seems like a little bit of black magic occurring behind closed doors in a secret star chamber, but it works. Another way the government could do, and this is what the government's been doing a lot of for the last year and is doing a heck of a lot of it right now, um, banks and major financial institutions and major pension funds have access to working directly with the Fed. And sometimes they need a short-term loan. So you know, there's what's called the repo market, the repo market. Now, repo, you know, to the average guy, when you hear the word repo, you look for your car keys and try to hide your Camaro. You know, uh, because you're thinking that uh, somebody thinks you didn't make your car payment and they're going to take your car back. The banks can take your car back. That's not what this means. In this case, repo means repurchase. And that the, 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 the re, it's, it's kind of repo is what it should be, right? Repurchase, repo should be it. But that sounds you know, just like South Park episode. So we won't use repo. They use the word repo. And what that basically means is, think of it this way. The government's acting like a big pawn shop. I don't know if you've ever been uh, you know, needing money and had to pawn something. Uh, pawn shop works this way. You walk into a pawn shop with something, and they, they, do, they give you two numbers. They'll offer you one number to give you cash to do, purchase your item directly. So, let's say you walk in with a barbecue. You say, hey, this is a $100 barbecue. Um, it's still new in the box. I never used it. Guy behind the counter is going to say, okay, I'll give you 40 bucks to buy it from you, or I'll give you 30 bucks on pawn. Now, what does that mean, 30 bucks on pawn? That means that you know you have the right. If you, if you sell it to him for 40 bucks outright, he now owns the barbecue and you can do anything he wants with it. If he gives you 30, 30 bucks on pawn, you take the 30 bucks and then you have the right to come back and purchase it back for 30 bucks plus interest. You understand that? Maybe, maybe you've had to use a pawn shop in your life once or twice or never, but that's how the pawn shops work. You either can sell it to them and then they're going to resell it for a profit or they can loan you money against this physical property. 
That's what the repo market is. The Federal Reserve is the world's greatest financial pawn shop. And it's really important, right? It allows banks to get short-term loans and promise to repay them at an interest rate. Uh, and, by, and, and the short-term loans are always against an asset. See, and, this, and by doing it this way, the, the Fed does not inject new money into the economy. He's taking an asset, replacing it with money, and then sometimes it's overnight. There, there's, you know, the, the Fed can set any rules about when that pawn is due. I mean, when you, go to, when you actually pawn your something, let's say you're pawning that barbecue, every pawn shop has their own rules. Sometimes it's 90 days. Sometimes it's six months. What, whatever it is, they have a rule. They say, okay, I'm going to give you $30 on pawn. Here's your 30 bucks, and you have 90 days. And in 90 days, we're going we're to charge you 10% interest on, on the 30 bucks. And then anytime then at 90 days, you can come in and we will, you know, uh, sell it back to you for the 30 bucks plus 10% interest for 90 days. That's how they make their money, right? So that's exactly what the Fed does a lot of the time. And they're doing a lot of it right now. So banks have assets. See, when you, you know, uh, banks own mortgages, they own, um, they own stocks, they own bonds, they own real estate, they own these things. And so they come in and they say, look, you know, if, if we sell, if we try to, we can't sell this fast enough. If we, if we have to sell this, uh, this, this uh, you know, this portfolio of stocks that we've got, it'll do two things. First of all, the portfolio is big. So just the fact that we're selling it, it's going to drive the prices down. And we don't have time. We need, we need to take, in, we need capital for to pay our taxes next week and or we need to do something and we need to, that money now let's have a repo agreement and so the fed says okay and, he, and they have a they have defined terms and here's the deal and you can get up to you can get a billion dollars i say a billion dollars of asset i'll loan i'll loan you a billion dollars on that for 14 days and your interest rates one percent or two percent or whatever their prevailing rate is, and then that what happens is those guys, you know, the, the bank has the the Federal Reserve has the asset, and the money, right? The money is now available to the bank to use for whatever their stated purpose is. Then the bank is obligated to come back in fourteen days and buy it back plus interest. It's a pawn shop. Now you think, okay, well, what if they don't pay it back? Then, but but see, that's the that's the thing. It's an asset. It's a real asset. It's a mortgage-backed security. It's a stock. It's real estate. It's a pack of a pack of uh, municipal or, or or federal government bonds. It is a real asset. The Federal Reserve still has the asset. They can always get the money back because they can always just sell the asset at the open market when the pricing is right. Does that make sense? I mean, this is it's kind of an interesting concept, right? The Fed acts in the repo market. The Fed acts like the world's biggest pawn shop. Kind of crazy, right? So um, another thing the Fed does is just they do just, just straight-out loans, overnight loans to banks on a regular basis. This is in normal monetary times, no, you know, normal economic times. They just give it straight loans, and they have you know, what's called the overnight window. The banks can come in. And, and now here's the thing. Why would a bank need to do that? And why do we help? We're bailing out the banks. Well, it's not quite the same. See, you know, we, some of this is actually consumer protection stuff. There's a big consumer protection element in all of this that you really have to kind of embrace. It sounds like the government's playing shenanigans and just favoring the banks, but not really. 
<clears throat> having a secure and stable banking system, we learned that this is what we this is why we're not going to have a Great Depression now because we learned this lesson in the Great Depression, you know, 100 years ago. Right? We learned this lesson. We're not going to repeat this lesson. A stable, secure banking system is vital for our running economy. So what we do is we put regulations on banks. And this, and this is, you know, I'm a, kind of a, I'm a free market guy, but having good banking regulations keeps my money safe when it's in the bank as just a consumer. Just a consumer guy like you, having good, sound, secure, non-onerous banking regulations, what kind of regulations are those? Okay, we, uh, if, if they, uh, if a bank has, say, a million, if, um, say, if a bunch of us get together and we all deposit our money in our, in our checking account and it's a million bucks, well, the bank, you know, they need to make money. And how they make money is they, they either invest or they loan that money out to other people. Okay? So if they lo- invest or loan it all, and then we want our money back. There's nothing, nothing to give us. When, when, when I write my checks, my checks are going to bounce because the bank doesn't have the money. They invested it or loaned it out to somebody else, and they don't have it. So banks are required to keep a certain amount of reserves on hand. It means they always have to keep a certain amount of money in reserves by law, the law of regulation. And you know, Congress doesn't know anything about this crap. They, they're, they're, they're about golfing and drinking martinis. But the, the, you know, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury monitor this stuff, and they are saying to themselves, okay, what's the right amount of reserves that a bank needs to have to be, to be solvent? And then they regulate what the bank does with the money. They say, okay, you need to have a, they say things like, it needs to be a balanced portfolio. You can't speculate with that money. You can't put it in derivatives or hedge funds, or you can only put 5% in derivatives and hedge funds. Um, you can't. You can't invest it in, you know, in cryptocurrencies like nobody should. Um, but you can't, um, you can't do. You, you, uh, you have to put. You can't put no more than than fifteen uh, percent into stocks. There's a set of regulations, so that there's a reasonable certainty, right, that that money is going to be protected over the long term, and the bank will still make some sort of a profit. They balance these things out, and then they watch the banks like a hawk to see if a bank's getting in trouble. Well, in dicey economic times, right, banks can be totally safe and secure. They can have plenty of assets, right? But what happens if, the, what happens if, the, if everybody's, you know, like right now, people aren't working, so they're not depositing a lot of money, right? The amount of money that's being direct deposited from your, your employer, for a lot of people, that's just stopped. So the bank... You know, the, instead, people are taking money out as they still pay their bills. Income has stopped. They need to still pay their bills. They're writing checks. So picture the bank's position on this, and it's because of regulations. Their reserves are drawing down. Not as much money that they predicted was coming in is coming in. More money is going out. What's the big idea? So in order to maintain the reserve, proper reserve levels, this is just an example. This is actually a very complicated tra- series of transactions, but I'm, I'm distilling it down to a simple idea. In order to make sure there's enough money all the time in the bank, they're going to have to sell some of their assets. Perfectly fine. That happens all the time in normal economic times. Banks say, hey, reserves are low. We'll sell a few stocks. We'll sell some of these government bonds. We'll sell some of these uh, real estate holdings. And we'll just sell them, and then we'll get the reserves back up. Everybody's happy, right? 
But when you're in an economic crisis, the stock market dropped 30%. Uh, nobody wants to spend it. There's the market for real estate is everyone's waiting. That's all on pause right now for a bit, right? And so what the what the Federal Reserve knows is they look at this and they say, okay, this is unusual times. The markets for those securities, which is normally very liquid, there's always a buyer at some price out there for these things, but the market has dried up. If we force the bank to sell those assets to maintain their reserves, they're going to drive the market even lower. No, 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 no. We don't, as a country, we want them to hang on to those stocks for a little bit. We want them to hang on to those mortgage-backed securities for a little bit. That prevents the bank from taking a loss. See, something else, too. Uh, I'm distracting myself because these ideas are like brain candy for me. Um, not only are we forcing them to sell those securities because of our regulations, which they can do. They, you know, that's a, when you say a bank is well capitalized, it means they've got enough assets, right? And enough assets and reserves, and that means they're, 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 they're financially solvent. That's what that means. But in order to meet the regulations and to make sure that these things are all in order, if they have to force to sell the assets, and if we're in a rocky you know, asset condition, the, all the banks having to sell their assets at the same time will cause more panic on the stock market, more panic in the real estate field, more, uh, more uh, disruption in the treasury market, because there's just more supply. There's already not, there are already not enough buyers of stocks right now. That's why the stock market dropped 30%. The problem will exacerbate the problem right, by not doing that. And conversely, if they sell those assets at a loss, in other words, if they sell the assets for less than they paid for them, which is a possibility in this market, then they get to take right off in the taxes and the banks will pay less taxes as well. It, there's just so many reasons. These are just a couple of the reasons why the Federal Reserve, in times like this especially, steps in and says, we're going to bring some stability and we're going to buy those assets from you. We're either going to directly loan you money so you have plenty of reserves and or probably probably and probably both of these things, and we're going to give you we're going to purchase those assets from you uh, as well, or loan you have uh, ninety day loans and one hundred eighty day loans against those assets, so you don't have to sell them. And then when that period's up, we are going to resell them back to you. So in reality, a lot of the things that you see going on in the economy right now, especially the actions of the Federal Reserve, are things that will in the medium term, not in the short term, in the medium term, say in the next two to five years, have less of an impact on the money supply than you might otherwise think. But the headline monkeys over at the media, mainstream media, they're not going to tell you, they're not going to present this way. They're going to hammer you with, you know, Fed injects $2 trillion in the economy. And it's just not that simple. And it's not that easy. And it's not just a big corporate bailout. It's something more. They're doing something to help us have a stable economic system. You know, there's, uh, you know, this is a problem on both sides of the equation because you have some, I'll say, extremist libertarian-minded people who are, I like them, they're on Twitter a lot, and I like to have intellectual conversations with them. They're going to hate me when I say this. But they have a, di they have a dogmatic idealism, right, about that should be no government intervention. 
And then you have the people on the left who want to take advantage of this opportunity for more government control. And the answer is in the middle. And, and I, I'm not a middle, wishy-washy, middle kind of guy. I am, I am a principled guy, but I understand the math here. And I'm telling you, we, we, we've learned lessons. We're not just doing this arbitrarily. It's not like the, some government official, although this does happen on occasion, usually in the Senate and Congress, that where some government official is uh, saying, I'm just playing favorites here, and I'm helping out my buddies, and I'm going to give them a bailout. That's usually not the case. The, even if they fumble it, their goal is to bring stability to the market to protect all of us. Because i got to tell you, middle-class America, we are the market. We are everything. A little quick aside here. Everyone says, oh, it's the rich this, and it's the poor of that. It's the rich this, it's the poor of that. I'm telling you, it's middle-class everything. No matter what anybody tells you, it's middle-class everything. All taxes are paid by the middle class. Poor people don't pay taxes. They, they think they do, and they get kind of the illusion of paying taxes, but they get net benefit that exceeds their taxes. Rich people pay a lot of taxes, and, and by some measurements, they pay, they pay a, a, um, way more than their share of taxes. But there's just not enough rich people. That sounds funny, right? There's not enough of them. You, you could take all the assets of all the billionaires and all the millionaires, and it wouldn't pay for the government for, for more than a few months. You could, I mean, complete confiscation. Take every dime Jeff Bezos has. He's the, one of the richest men in the world, if not the richest. He's one of the top three, no matter what, which way you slice it. You could take all of his assets, and it, would, it, it wouldn't run the government for a month. Right? Take every penny he's got. Wouldn't, it wouldn't make a dent in the national budget. Not really. Couple of day, a couple of weeks' worth of bills, right? That, that's, that's what we're talking about here. Okay, so um, the point being, they're working to take and bring stability, right? Stability. You know, it seems like a long, long time ago, but during the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, um, the government performed a trillion-dollar program of market stabilization and stimulus. Again, round number, trillion-dollar number. But much of that was in the form of loans. You know, the, the, the next biggest part of that stimulus was the purchasing of securities. Now, since then, those securities have either reached maturity and been completely paid back, or they were resold back into the open market at a later date. Some of those transactions. The Fed was actually able to take money back from the money supply because the payment coming back exceeded what they put in. They, they, it was a pawn shop. The, 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 the people, you know, the, the securities they purchased, in that, in that case, most of them were, well, not most of them, but a lot of them were mortgage-backed securities. Those mortgages were either paid off by the homeowner, the homeowner has since sold his property and the loans were paid off, right? Or the Fed has sold those securities back at the new, at the now higher market rate. The Fed made a profit, just like a pawn shop. And it actually returned the profit, the surplus cash. It, it took the amount they paid and X'd it off the balance sheet, evened out the balance sheet, and took the excess cash and returned it to the Treasury. It became government money. So believe it or not, the government actually made a profit 
on uh, as a whole, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, the, uh, and I know some of you will argue this point back and forth, but the government actually made a profit. I'm not saying that the government should make a profit. Note that my, my previous disclaimer, I am neither agreeing or, nor disagreeing with any policy. Okay. I'm simply explaining things, right? But the government made a profit on that thing, right? And the economy returned to normal. But during the time being, they provided the cash infusions and the, and the liquidity that the, gov- the economy needed. Importantly, and to our conversation now, the net effect was negligible against total money supply over the long term. That's why you know, everybody said this huge inflation, you know, the trillion dollar stimulus back then, it was going to cause huge inflation. Now they said we were repeating the mistakes of the 1970s, we're doing it all again because we're total idiots, yada, yada, yada. But inflation's been nowhere. I mean, that, that was more than 10 years ago. It was 11, 12 years ago. And those, those extreme measures were done, and inflation has been tame. Largely because, and i got to give him some credit, he wasn't perfect. A couple specific mistakes I, I could point out, but it's not worth doing right now. But Ben Bernanke, who was chairman of the Fed at the time, we like to throw this around. We like to say, hey, this guy, he wrote the book on you know being a quarterback. So, and what we're saying is he's an expert. But when I say that Ben Bernanke wrote the book on the Great Depression, he literally wrote the book on the Great Depression. He wrote his book out there, and I have a copy of it. It's called Essays on the Great Depression. And he talks about the mistakes that were made, what should have been done. And he was the right guy for the, Holy crap, aren't we lucky? He, he was the right guy at the job. So he knew the causes of inflation, right? And he structured to the best of his ability a couple of mistakes. Again, let's tip our hat couple of mistakes, but he did the, one of the best jobs of, of, of managing that crisis that, that we've had in our history. Right, so I, I want to make sure I tip my hat to the guy. That's great! But uh, he wrote the book, and he, he arranged this, he aligned this, because he was aware. He was aware of the danger of too much money in an economy, and what that could do to the inflation rate. And so he structured his recovery it purposefully and with intent to avoid that. And I think that's largely what we're doing right now. Now, I need to, I need to t- just stop for a second because um, there's another aspect of this that's really, really important to understand. It's really important. It's this. Yes, inflation is a worry, but deflation's worse. And when you have a financial crisis of any sort, the biggest risk is deflation. Okay, so I've just decided this. I'm going to do a separate podcast. I want you all to understand that inflation, deflation, the difference between the two and why one is better than the other and why it's important for what we're doing now, for the general economy, and why it, it argues against cryptocurrencies and lots of other things. So I'll do a separate podcast on that later on. Okay, so that's it. So, so where are we? So the, the Fed is, uh, the, this new law, between 2 and $2.2 trillion. What is it, what's in that? What's in that law? Lots of stuff, right? A lot of loans. A lot of loans that convert into grants. And if it's a grant, it becomes ostensibly free money. But right now, it's loans. That's done on purpose, my friends. I think Steve Mnuchin, he's the Treasury Secretary right now. I think, he, I think he's the genius in the mix here. And he knows 
that it needs to be, for money supply purposes, it needs to be on the books as a loan right now. And then it's because forgiven in the future, when the economy comes back, it has a net zero or a net near zero impact on the money supply. And if it has a net near zero impact on the money supply, it will not cause inflation. Are you reading me? Are you feeling that? Sir, yes, sir! Right? The next thing he's doing, they're talking about doing, do, uh, for certain key industries, and President Trump said this, will you like him or not? I don't care if you like him or not. It doesn't matter. We're talking about the problem at hand, right? They're talking about, say, supporting Boeing in exchange for stock and ownership of Boeing. And on the surface, that feels like socialist takeover of, 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 of the economy and uh, nationalizing industries, and this is, this, is, this is terrible, we're Venezuela. No, we're not. They know that if they just give Boeing money, it can create a problem, it can create two things. It can create an anti-competitive, antitrust environment where one, in, one business is favored, and it can also create influx of more because we're talking billions of dollars for them, just, just for them, to keep them going. And, and we kind of need them, though, right? They make fighter aircrafts. We should always have that capacity on our own shores, right? If anything, if anything we've learned from this crisis is that we should have a certain percentage of our, cr- our critical uh, supply chains always manufactured here in the United States. If you've learned nothing, learn that lesson, right? But, the, uh, but here you have Boeing, right? If they just give them the money, it, it, with the sizable, size of money they're talking about giving them, it'll create a, a little bump in the money supply. But if they're trading stock, then the government has the stock, and once, thing, once the stock market stabilizes, the government can then resell that stock into the open market, likely for a return, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is to keep, it helps them control the money supply. It's not an increase in the money supply because they've sold the stock back. And whoever buys the stock, whether it is Boeing itself, that as them, whether it's them buying their stock back or another investor buying their stock back, it doesn't matter at all because the money's still coming back out of the economy. Does that make sense? So as tempting as this is to see the, this action as you know, a socialist, you know, socialist takeover of the country, or a horrible overreachment of the Fed, or it's or a terrible inflationary event. You know, we'll know more once the data starts flowing closer. But these guys, I think, you know, when you look at it the way through the lens I'm showing you right now, what you're seeing is government guys getting liquidity into the markets in a way that does not negatively impact money supply. Said better, it does not distort the money supply in relation to the value of the goods and services produced. The, the, the need for money, when I say need for money, it doesn't mean you need to pay your bills. I mean the, the need for money in order to conduct proper transactions and investments will not be distorted against the money supply. So long term, in my opinion, the net impact, either deflationary or inflationary, will be negligible or marginal. Now, if you have specific questions about this, I'm happy to go into more. Just let me know. I'm, again, way too long. If you have specific questions about this, DM me through Twitter. It's the best way right now. I'll have other channels open as time allows, but uh, you know, 
new, new maybe mailing list or something. We'll see what happens. But if you want more explanation, DM me on Twitter, jeffreyjhardy.com, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, J in the middle, H-A-R-D-Y, um, jeffreyjhardy, at Jeffrey J. Hardy on Twitter and send me a DM or send or, or tweet to me and I will try to answer your question or or add your topic to my list. I, I like answering questions, right? Um, or um, aside from that, make sure this podcast, if I haven't, well, even if I've bored the crap out to you, please subscribe and please, you know, give me a little review and just say, hey, Jeff, you know, way to go because I do these things for free. Note, let me call your attention to something. This is a podcast. You haven't heard a single commercial, and you're not gonna. I'm not selling anything. Not yet, anyway. I might come up with a T-shirt. That'd be nice. But this is just for you. This is to get the information that's in my head and my understanding to get it into your head. Maybe I've done a good job. Maybe I haven't. But I'm gonna keep trying until I've given you all I got. I'm here for you. I love you. I care about you. I want you to be happy and successful. I don't want you to be scared. Things are going to be okay. Let me know if you need some help. Happy to, happy to pitch in anytime at all. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.